Welcome to From the Booth, a podcast where we talk about the films playing at BYU's international cinema. Today, we're talking about A Thousand Cuts, a Filipino documentary that came out in 2020, made by filmmaker Ramona Diaz. My guest is Edward L. Carter, journalist, lawyer, and Brigham Young University professor of communications. He has authored more than three dozen academic journal articles on media law and free expression. He has taught communications law at BYU since 2004. Professor Carter completed Fulbright specialist grants in Colombia and Chile. He enjoys traveling with students on mentored projects in Latin America and Europe. He has represented journalists and others in state and federal courts, and he served as an expert witness in free expression cases in Utah and New Hampshire. He holds academic degrees from BYU, Northwestern University, the University of Edinburgh, and Oxford University. He's an avid amateur in basketball, skiing, mountain biking, and the short stories of Jorge Luis Borges. He and his wife, Kimberly, have four children. Welcome to the IC Podcast, Ed. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You are the specialist that we are so fortunate to have today on our podcast. A Thousand Cat definitely deals with freedom of speech, journalism, saving democracy through news literacy. What are some of the things that you would like to let our audience know about this documentary and the importance of the messages that it contains? Well, I think it's a great documentary. To be honest, it's, it's hard for me to watch because journalists are being attacked around the world. Maria Ressa in the Philippines is one, one example of that. And I think this film portrays that in a really powerful way. So, so while I say it's a little difficult, I think it's worthwhile. And certainly any citizen of the United States or any country should be aware of the real threats to journalism, which translate into real threats to democracy and representative government around the world. In addition, I would just say, you know, Maria Ressa in 2021 was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. So that was after this film was made. But there's continuing recognition, I think, of her powerful example of being a journalist who is fighting for the rule of law and democratic principles in the face of some pretty major obstacles imposed on her by the government. What is the context of the Philippines and this documentary? It's filmed a little bit before. I mean, Duterte is in power, but but she had had interviews with him before he was in power. Then she has interviews during his ascension to power. What is the historical context that would be interesting for our audience to know? The Philippines, why Duterte? How did he use as well the media? He seems to be an expert at manipulation of the electorate. Yes. And I'll, I'll broaden the view even a little bit more and just say, I think in the world generally right now, we have these autocratic tendencies from, you know, sort of populist autocratic leaders who do manipulate media. And part of that is to attack journalists, attack the press. And and we've seen that obviously in the United States with Donald Trump calling journalists enemies of the people and, and talking about fake news. We unfortunately are seeing that happening right now in, in Russia with their war against the Ukraine and the you know efforts by President Putin there to manipulate the story about what's really going on and 
calling it a denazification campaign and and just you know a lot of lies and shutting down journalism and censorship that's happening so so really i think the philippines situation fits into this larger context that we see unfortunately in multiple places around the world where journalists are being scapegoated and being censored and attacked in the face of these powerful sort of autocratic leaders and their followers and unfortunately duterte's been pretty successful at doing that, you know, putting putting journalists in jail, having laws passed that criminalize what, what basically should be free, free press and free speech, and doing it all in the name of selfish, you know, political reasons to get power and consolidate power. Maria Ressa, you know, has a background as a journalist. She worked for CNN for a long time, uh, attended Princeton University. She's got, I think, a, a really good context and perspective on the role of journalism in a, in a democracy, not just in the Philippines, but in other places, too. And, you know, started the Rappler about 10 years ago, and she's been arrested, I think, 10 times for basically doing what should be pretty commonplace, normal journalism. You know, I mean, she, she like other journalists, is imperfect. Journalists make mistakes and, and things do happen, but she's really not doing anything abnormal that deserves being arrested, put in jail. I think that what's happened there is basically just Duterte has seen her as a political enemy and a threat to his power. And so is using the power of the state to enforce kind of his own selfish interests in, you know, consolidating his power. You know, at some point in the documentary, we see we see the government changing a law and applying it retroactively to put Maria in prison. It's just there's just so many things that we feel like this journalist is is at risk all the time with her with her team there's always been lies in in politics but how do you view the internet how does it change how misinformation spreads and changes attitudes well that's a really important issue and it's actually something that maria ressa addressed in her nobel peace prize acceptance speech in late 2021 that's not captured in the documentary because because it happened later but she addressed this issue of social media companies largely concentrated in Silicon Valley in the United States and how they have really changed the way that we receive and process and share information. It's been a fundamental shift in the last, you know, 15 years or so. The thing about companies like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, you know, you, you name it, those social media companies are for-profit businesses. That's not necessarily an evil or a bad thing. You know, we have a free market capitalistic system and they've taken advantage of that to build pretty powerful corporate empires around the idea of using information submitted by users. You know, they've harnessed this user-generated information but then applying algorithms to capture people's attention. And so what we have to know about social media is it's entertainment. You know, there, there can be some information value there, but it's really not journalism. Even to the extent Facebook and other social media companies are sharing news stories, those are driven by algorithms. And so we live in these echo chambers where we're getting information that the algorithm knows that we already want. And we're really not learning anything new beyond our own limited perspectives, you know, that we've already made clear to the algorithm that we, that we are, are clued into. And so I think for consumers and citizens today, the key thing to realize about the internet and social media companies is we have to be proactive about going outside of the algorithms to seek out news that's valuable, to, to seek out what I would consider high-value journalism and not just sort of the lowest common denominator information and clickbait that comes to us through 
through social media channels that we that we might subscribe to. And so the key thing is educating people about that need. And then we have to make this sacrifice and this choice to spend our time and money supporting good journalism. That's one of the things that I would say is if consumers want to know, am I getting something that's just reinforcing my previously held beliefs or am I getting something that's actually going to help me understand the world better in new ways, maybe challenge my you know understanding of the world a little bit and help me to evolve? One way to know that is to ask yourself if you're paying for it, because if you know, if we're paying a subscription for a news organization, then that tells me that the product is the news content. If we're not paying for it, the product is actually the person, you know, like our attention is the product and the news companies are benefiting from our, our attention as opposed to us paying for news content that we need. And so that's just kind of one simple thing that I think we can do is subscribe to a news organization online. And there are lots of good ones. One of the paradoxes, I think, of the Internet age is there's more quality news content now than ever before. But the challenge is just that it takes a little more work to go find it and to pay attention to it and not just fall into the easiest format of just seeing what our friends are sharing on Instagram. Very good advice. Would you go as offering some suggestions on different sides of political spectrum of things that you see as quality journalism that our students may want to look into and and pay for? Well, sure. And, and, you know, this is kind of confined to the United States context. I've done research and teaching in other countries, too, and, and they have their own context. But I think in the United States context, there are news organizations like The Atlantic. The Atlantic is one of the oldest news organizations in the country. I mean, was really started around the time of Abraham Lincoln, you know, to kind of champion principles of of democracy and of representative government. And so there's a lot of history there for more than 150 years of quality journalism. It's a it's a magazine, news magazine. It's also, of course, got its its online presence and does require a subscription either in print or online, but well worth it. I think some of the major news organizations are certainly worth paying attention to. I mean, the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times. And granted, again, you know, people could have criticisms for those news organizations being imperfect, and they and they certainly are. But I think that if news consumers would, you know, seek out a variety, then that's good. I don't necessarily qualify as journalism everything that exists out there that would call itself news. You know, there's a lot of good news that happens on CNN, but there's also a lot of political commentary and, and discussion and debate that I wouldn't consider high-value journalism. And then when you get to Fox News on the right and maybe MSNBC on the left, there's really only a small amount of journalism that's actually happening there. You know, I mean, if you're watching Rachel Maddow or you're watching Tucker Carlson, neither one of those people is really doing journalism. And so there might be some entertainment value there and they're sharing information and opinions. But I think consumers would do better paying attention to actual news reporting that's independent in the public interest that's done for reasons other than, you know, driving ratings. It's done for improving our knowledge about democracy. And and there are a lot of good journalists out there doing that. So the importance of supporting good journalism for democracy, really. So you, you mentioned like the importance of finding truth in this marketplace of ideas. What are other things that you would like to let us know about this quest? 
Well, that's really important. The marketplace concept is a is an analogy. I, I think of it as an analogy that's you know been around in the United States free speech jurisprudence for about 100 years, traces back to a dissenting opinion by a Supreme Court justice named Oliver Wendell Holmes in 1919. So during the World War I time period, you know, there were some Russian Jewish activists in New York City who were working in the garment factories, and they were opposed to some of the things the United States was doing in World War I, especially regarding the Russian Revolution at the time. And so, you know, they were throwing flyers out of buildings, and that was their method of distributing their message. And then they got arrested and prosecuted for violating the Espionage and Sedition Acts. And so they were ultimately, you know, deported. The convictions were upheld by the Supreme Court. But the dissenting opinion by Justice Holmes has really become, I think, a shining example of what free speech and the marketplace of ideas can can really be all about. And what he said was, look, these people have their viewpoints and they might be wrong. You know, maybe what they're saying is not true, not accurate or not helpful for a majority of people in in the American democracy, but but they still have a right to say what they want to say and we should respect the right of a minority group, not just a religious or racial or ethnic minority, but a minority of opinion and not only tolerate their view but give them a chance to try to convince us and persuade us and if what they have to say is valuable, we should change our minds and, and you know, adapt our, our viewpoints. And that's what the marketplace of ideas concept is about, according to Justice Holmes. It allows us to get closer to truth by listening to others and, and of course, sharing our ideas, too, with them. And through that debate and discussion and a variety of viewpoints, you know, we, we learn and we get, we get closer to social truth. And I would say that's truth with a lowercase t. You know, in the in the context of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have a concept of the capital T truth that comes through revelation and inspiration. And that's another way to get truth that's just as valid, but is just a little bit of a different method. I think people have to be open to the marketplace concept, which is allowing stuff that maybe we disagree with or think is even harmful Of course, it's not absolute. There is a point, even Justice Holmes said, there's a point at which somebody's speech could be threatening to well-being and safety and security and, you know, physical integrity. And so, of course, if there are threats, if there are, you know, incitements to violence, those things are outside the bounds of of free expression and the marketplace of ideas. But, But for the most part, there's a lot that can happen in the marketplace And it's not all going to be valuable, but we have to allow a lot of stuff in order to ascertain what is valuable. And continue that that conversation, definitely more than on social media. One of the things that Maria explores in the documentary is the democracy that in the Philippines that is becoming more and more authoritarian and the lessons that she draws from that, from witnessing this, this sliding into a more authoritarian government. One journalist is asking her, what, what can we learn here in the U.S. from what is that happening in the Philippines? Do you have any comments on this? Well, for sure. Yeah, one of the important things I think that she touches on is, is pushing back and fighting against the concept of impunity. She's talked about that in in several contexts, you know, that one of the things the Duterte regime is doing, and also this was evident, I think, in the administration of Donald Trump and in Putin, with Putin in Russia, is that they want themselves to be seen as the source of truth and also the source of, of law, you know. And so 
there's kind of this concept that, hey, the rules don't apply to the leader and to the powerful group that's in the administration. You know, they, they get to make up their own rules about not only what's true and not true, but also what's right and wrong and what is legal and not legal. And so that's obviously problematic and frightening because, you know, it's just so ad hoc. I mean, that's really not what American democracy is built on. We have the rule of law, which means the laws, the rules, the constitutional principles apply to everybody just the same, regardless of how much money they have or what elected office they hold or how loud they scream on Twitter every day. You know, that the rule of law really means that everybody has to be subjected to certain standards. But through impunity, you know, what Maria Rissa talks about is, well, not only do those administrations not follow the actual rules, the rest of us have to follow, but then they then they get away with it. You know, there are no consequences. There's there's impunity. And so former President Trump once famously made a comment that he could stand on Fifth Avenue in New York City and shoot somebody and nothing would ever happen to him. Like nobody would hold him accountable. Like he's actually been transparent and open about he could break the rules and never be accountable. And, you know, you could say, well, was he saying that jokingly or was he serious? Well, it doesn't matter. Just the fact that he said that is problematic for the rule of, of law and people's trust in, in the rule of law. And so so I think one of the points of all of what Maria Ressa is doing is that we have to, all of us as citizens have to fight the impunity or lack of accountability that happens. And I would say that's as much people who support, you know, those leaders as much as those who oppose those leaders, because having impunity and destroying the rule of law is not beneficial for anybody, regardless of which political party they're in, because then what it does is it just sets us up for more autocrats and dictators to come into power and impose their will. And this this is the great work of journalists, you know, to push back on that. But if citizens and consumers of news fail to pay attention to the journalism that's happening, then we're, we're going to lose democracy. You know, it's, it's, it's not foreordained that democracy will stay forever. We'll, we'll lose it if we stop believing in it and fighting for it and and supporting the actual people who want to want to keep it going. There's just one other thought, you know, with Maria Ressa I would share, and, and that is that she, I think, has done a pretty good job of pointing out as well that in the marketplace of ideas, there is a lot of untruth, but the phrase fake news is really meaningless. I mean, it gets thrown around, but it, it's just a political term that some leaders use to say, uh, well, they call fake news whatever they don't like, you know, but the reality is the better terms to use would be propaganda, disinformation, and misinformation. I mean, propaganda is defined as government persuasion, and sometimes it's true and sometimes it's not. But if it's coming from the government, it's not vetted through an independent arbiter like a journalist. And so what we have to do is be a little skeptical of that, not cynical, but a little skeptical of of propaganda and just check it out and verify it. Then we have disinformation, which is intentional falsehood. You know, somebody's lying with with knowledge that they're lying, and we should be able to recognize that. And then misinformation is unintentional falsehood. You know, sometimes people are trying to get something right and accurate, but they make a mistake or they make an error and it just comes out wrong. And so there's a difference, obviously, between disinformation and misinformation, but Consumers should learn to recognize those in the marketplace and discard untruths, but not be cynical. You know, I think we still have, we have to have hope and we have to have optimism. We have to have faith and trust in humanity and in, and in God and not become, you know, too jaded about it all. But yet, do be critical about the information that we're receiving. Excellent. For some of our students who might be interested, 
in pursuing this this research for more truth and more meaningful information. Would you recommend more reading reading articles or books or a class maybe in your college that they might be interested in taking? Great question, for sure. Well, we have in the School of Communications, we have a minor. So so for people who are not a communications major, they're welcome to come participate in the communications minor. And, and it consists of five classes that that would touch on these issues, you know, giving some basic introductions to what is journalism and also what is public relations and how do we distinguish that from advertising. And, and then there's a class I teach on free expression and media law. That's part of the minor. So we definitely dive into the marketplace theory and how to try to distinguish truth from error and what are some of the legal, both legal freedoms and legal responsibilities that come along with free, free speech. And so yeah, I highly recommend the communications minor for anybody interested in pursuing, you know, this further. And there are lots of great books out there, articles, you know, the the amount of information that we have on this topic is is growing and so that's good, but news literacy is still kind of a field that's in its infancy really. My perspective though is every college graduate should go forward and and leave their college experience having a pretty good handle on how to operate in this information ecosystem that they're going into because, you know, we might be training engineers and nurses and humanities graduates and they're going to go and have jobs, but all of us are citizens and news consumers. And so that ability to distinguish truth from error and know what's high quality journalism and what's not is just a key citizenship skill. And so whether it's done formally through a minor or whether somebody, you know, kind of just takes that as a personal interest, I, I would just encourage people to really think about that and study it out. There's one last thing I will add to that. We have a website called journalism.byu.edu, and students, faculty, staff, alumni, anybody is welcome to go there. We have eight modules posted about news literacy and, and some of these topics, you know, about how to be an informed news consumer. And that's done at a basic level, so it would be a good intro for somebody, and then they could go beyond it to a higher, you know, a higher level with some of the readings and and stuff like that. Well, thank you very much, Ed. I know that our students will gain a lot from your views and your your points in the, in this podcast, and from watching the documentary. It's playing only twice this week, so don't miss it. Thank you very much for joining us today. Our podcast is produced by International Cinema and supported by the BYU College of Humanities. We're solely responsible for the opinions and ideas expressed here as they do not represent any official position adopted by the university or its supporting institutions. As always, we thank our producer, Devin Glenn, and our sound engineer, Marina Ekstrom-Pratt. We would also like to acknowledge the musical talents of Johnny Stallings, who wrote and recorded music for the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ed. And until next time, see you in 250 of the Kimball Tower.